Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Johnny Brosey, Courtney Marriott. Uh, we're at their home in Newburgh. It's June 21st, 2022. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get us rolling is why wine? Oh, why wine? Um, do you want to go first? Go ahead, babe. Okay. Um, so, actually, wine is something that I've been doing for quite a while. Um, I got a degree at Oregon State in food science and technology, but uh, I went the fermentation uh, science route, which typically produces a lot of brewers. Uh, it's like, the, that is the brewing degree. Um, and I thought that that's what I was gonna do for a long time. Um, right after college, I went and lived in Germany for a year and I gained a fellowship to where I brewed at Radeberger uh, for an entire year, which was an amazing life. Uh, I learned a lot. I got 50 liters of beer per month, uh, which was more than what any person needs. And it was great, but uh, coming back, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I'd always wanted to at least try my hand at wine. It was something that I always found interesting. Um, and so I got an a internship as a winemaker intern at E&J Gallo at their um, Livingston branch, which is their, their large winery. So uh, I went from going to this brewery to the largest winery in the world uh, just two years after graduating college. And uh, after that, I was, I was pretty much hooked. And so it took me a lot of other places. So um, I did three vintages at Derenberg in South Australia. Uh, I worked here pretty locally at Lemelson Vineyards for a couple of things, one harvest and some bottling. I worked at King Estate for a year. Uh, I started a winery in Washington, uh, or helped start a winery. Uh, it was Fortuity Cellars, and I was there for almost three years. Um, and it's just always been something that I've been doing. I've, I've loved harvest, and I've uh, just been hooked on wine. So I guess that's why wine for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh I think I approach wine more from the consumer side. I grew up here in Newburgh and uh, worked at the Dundee Bistro for a lot of a lot of years. I feel like I kind of cut my teeth in the industry growing up in that restaurant. So it was always fun to be around the Ponzi family and you know see who was coming in for their harvest dinners and bringing the crews out. And they were really who supported us through the winter. So I think initially it just became kind of like that community effort and it was a, you know an industry that always supported us and supported me personally so um, that's why for me it's just growing up here how could you not I mean I got I got spoiled on Pinot and Chardonnay at a young age and uh, uh, it's been really beautiful to have Johnny in my life to sort of carry this part of our life forward you know and be able to be more hands-on in it. Mm -hmm. So Johnny, let's start with you on, on you mentioned kind of, you, you, you landed at Gallo just after graduating. What, what was it about, you said you wanted to try your hand at wine. So yeah. why, why? why? Why did you want to try your hand at wine? What was it about that got you in there? And then what was your first experience in wine like? Yeah, so the I've always been drawn to seasonality as far as agriculture goes. Uh, my parents, I grew up um, part-time in Oregon and part-time in Washington. And when I was in Washington, my parents, have had a 50 acre apple orchard. So I've always been around 
growing some sort of fruit. And later on, I learned that you could process those apples into cider, and I really like that. But uh, with wine, there was something just, there was the chance of getting a degree in it at Oregon State. And uh, being around other friends that were like-minded as far as enjoying these fermentation projects is really what kind of just kick-started it for me. And then after learning the science of it and everything that you analyze and look at, like, I just, I really will always love that part. So what was your first experience like at Gallo? Oh, wow. Um, so I went to this winery that um, the smaller tanks are like 30,000 gallons, which in Oregon's a huge tank. Uh, they have three, they have rows and rows and rows of 300,000 gallon tanks to where they issued us a bicycle to go and that's what we had to ride through the winery because it's all outdoors to collect wine samples. And so to me it was like, wow, this is, this is huge. And this is a family that's been around for a long time and has a huge part in American wine history. And, and I gotta be a part of that. And then they told me later that uh, the amount of grapes that we brought into that facility, we made over a hundred million cases of wine. And so just that I, I was awestruck and yeah, it, it, like I said, it got me hooked. I loved, I'm glad that my first experience was there uh, because I learned so much about processing and the things that you can do in a lab to make a quality product. Mm -hmm. And Courtney, tell me about your kind of, you mentioned kind of being spoiled on Oregon wine from an yeah. early age. Tell me about your kind of initial impressions of Oregon wine and of the industry, especially through the lens of like the Dundee Bistro. Oh, wow. Uh, I grew up learning how elite it felt. You know, people were starting to market Oregon wines in a way that seemed newer and we were getting attention both, you know, statewide, nationally, and even internationally as I was coming up through that, through that environment. So, um, I felt really lucky we would do, you know, staff tastings and we got to go hang out with Jay Christopher in the cellar and, you know, Mo Ayub would come in every Friday night and want to hang out and share wines and we just got to hang out with some really cool people and um, it, it just felt like a, a, a fun place to be getting to see the industry kind of grow up around these really well-known varietals and, and seeing Oregon kind of come up on the map. Mm -hmm. So Johnny, for you, at the, at the point of, you, of Gallo and of, of being kind of hooked, as you mentioned, did you have a sort of a, a, a vision in mind? Now I'm in wine, this is what I want to do with it. So after that, I was, I was unsure. I was actually applying for brewery jobs, um, and one of them fell through, which I'm so happy it did, because <laughs> it was either I'm going to go work at this brewery or I'm going to go to Australia. And uh, Australia had always been uh, something that I wanted to go and see, uh, and the winery there was incredible. It's it's one of the craziest wineries I've ever been to. Um, and yeah, it's called Derenberg. They do things completely with basket presses uh, and, and they, they process 5,000 metric tons. So it, like they're running a lot of wine through basket. It just, everything they did there was backwards of what you've learned and I, I loved it though. Uh, the community that I had built down there, I'm still in touch with a lot of people and uh, I liked it so much I went back and have a total of three vintages there. Um, and I just, yeah, it's, like I said, I got hooked off of it. Were you envisioning yourself being a winemaker? Yeah, yeah, that was the, the ultimate goal was I wanted to continue to travel and work uh, because that's what Australia afforded for me. And then kind of being that seasonal hopper here and there and then learning as much as I could and eventually um, working somewhere as a winemaker. So at what point do your stories intersect? Ooh, 
We were introduced by a mutual friend from Oregon State where we both went to school and uh, Johnny was just a year or so ahead of me uh, in school, but we had never we had never crossed paths, so we were just one circle away. And <laughs> There's a picture of us together at a party. We're standing about eight feet apart and we'd never met. So. <laughs> yeah, so I got really lucky. We met at a, a New Year's party um, Gosh, four or five years ago now, yeah. and uh, it was long distance for quite a while while Johnny was helping uh, start up a boutique winery in, in Yakima. Mm -hmm. So we were driving from, you know, I worked in downtown Portland, Yakima on Friday night, and by Sunday we were turning around and coming back. And uh, we, we did that for a long time until uh, I decided I'd really like to stop crying quite so much <laughs> and um, get some more rest. And uh, I almost moved to Yakima, and at the last minute, we kind of changed plans, and Johnny decided he was going to come down here. So we found a way to make it work here. Yeah. Yeah, a year and a half of driving from Yakima <laughs> to Portland was, uh, it was, it was time to one of us make the move. More, more than enough time doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get to that, to that point, I'm curious. You mentioned the kind of the starting up, starting up the, the poison yakima. Tell me about the process. What that was like for you. That was cutting my teeth uh, in the biggest way possible because I didn't. I already knew what it took to make wine. I'd been doing it for a long time and, and worked at the smallest wineries to the biggest ones. Like I've seen a lot, uh, but I truly learned the business part of it and what you have to do to be successful and what it takes to build a club and what it takes to fill out the paperwork and the licenses from the county and what you have to do to get a building permit. Just things that I don't think a lot of winemakers even have to deal with or think about. So I learned the whole broad spectrum in that span of three years and made a lot of really great standing relationships too. How did, how did it come about in the first place? So it was started by some family friends, um, the Fergus Drums, and um, Emily, she actually used to babysit me uh, when I was a kid in Yakima. And they knew that I was into wine, and uh, they both were doing uh, Seattle jobs and wanted to make a change. And so they approached me uh, to see if I wanted to start this winery with them. I think another really cool part of what Johnny did with them is, you know, they, they were really ready to they had a very different vision where they were going big early mm -hmm. and so they had bought property and were planning to build a winery which Johnny got to help design and ended up putting in some of the systems so in addition to the winemaking and the business end there was plumbing and connections and all of these things that you know he basically got to design the winery and then he moved here but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was really a great opportunity I think to to learn some of that back end mm -hmm. So I'm curious at that point, uh, now you've seen that business part, did that, was that inspiring to you or was that like deterring to you? So what we're doing now, what, it was more, I knew that what we're doing now, and who knows, maybe 10 years from now we'll have to edit this out, but <laughs> as far as what we're doing now, I don't think we'll ever be the size that that winery is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not that it deterred me, I just know that um, we're really happy in our day jobs, but we love this gig as well. So, you know, I think we are one of those cases of having our cake and eating it too. So you mentioned kind of the, at the breaking point of figuring out who someone's gonna move somewhere next. So what brought you here? So um, there are, there's so many wineries here that I, and I have a lot of connections here as well that I wasn't worried about finding a job. I think Courtney's a little more specialized in um, uh, the job market to where it probably would have been a little more difficult for her to find a job in Yakima. So that kind of just made sense for me to move here. And I, I love Oregon. I grew up here and went to college in Corvallis. Uh, 
yeah, it just seemed like an easy, easy move for me. And what did you find when you got here? Uh, I found that uh, I did construction with Courtney's dad for two months because there wasn't a job readily available. Um, but there were some other opportunities that came up. And while I was in Washington, I was working part-time as an adjunct instructor at uh, Yakima Valley College's winemaking program. Uh, and then, as luck would have it, Chemeketa, um, a position opened up for their winemaking instructor for full-time. And so um, I applied for that and I got the job, which was, it's been great. I'm still there and I love that job. So tell me about that. I'm curious, uh, what was the what was the position you kind of came into? What, what were the expectations on you, and what did you what, what were you excited about from that position? Oh wow, um, I the what I was really excited about is I could take the program and kind of bend it to what what I thought would be good for the college. Um, I didn't have that same flexibility as an adjunct at the other college, uh, but this one was like, no, this is your program. Um, if you think that this is important or you feel that this is important for the students, do it. And um, everybody that taught there before me laid some really good groundwork uh, for me to build off of and expand on. What's been the most rewarding part? Ooh, um, you know, I love it when students reach out and say, hey, uh, I got a job at this place, or I'm now working full time at this place. Um, that's, that's the most rewarding. And then also students telling me horror stories where they're like, oh, thank you for teaching me this because we did something that you taught us as far as fixing a problem. And so that to me is like, perfect, I've done my job. Like that, that's what's most rewarding. We talk about sort of bending it to what you think the industry needs. I'm, I'm curious about that because uh, obviously the industry is always changing and evolving, and the needs and the uh, so. So where, where where did you find it kind of lacking when you took over? What did you What did you want to add to it? Oh, I don't think it would be lacking. It's just things that I find really important. Um, so. When I was at King Estate, uh, Brent Stone, I remember him saying this, and I've, I've, this is my wine mantra, and that's as a winemaker, you need to do everything uh, that you possibly can to make the best product possible. Like that's, that's hands down, that's a winemaker's job. And so my take with this is I do maximum intervention, or at least that's what I teach, so everybody knows what tools they have in the tool chest and what's available to them to make a quality product. So that, that's kind of my thing, it was like, take it or leave it, you can learn to use this finding agent. If that goes against your winemaking techniques or dogma, that's fine, don't use it, but you're gonna learn about it. So that's, that's kind of how I approach that. It's interesting, I like that, because it's not, it does kind of go against most people we talk to. I know, yeah, and I'm, I'm, and that's, again, like I have, I started at Gallo, like I'm a maximum intervention winemaker. You're gonna make a good product. Oh, I try to. <laughs> we try to. So talk about, let's talk about the we. So at what point did the, the idea of having your own thing together become something you wanted to do? Oh gosh, uh, I never thought I would be a small business owner, but uh, <laughs> Johnny was really passionate about it and really passionate about having it be an us project. And I think we bring sort of an opposites attract um, methodology to sort of our relationship, but also to our business. <laughs> uh, you know, since the Dundee Bistro, a lot has changed in my career and uh, you know, much of it has been in the corporate world, teaching safety, teaching agricultural safety. I have a background in Spanish, but it's all very, you know, corporate and structured and there's written contracts. And so it was interesting to, in 2020, then shift toward our own project and start trying to kind of push to get a written contract for the fruit that we were gonna buy. <laughs> and you know, uh, the perspective on size, you know, I'm thinking one, one ton is 
a lot. And Johnny's like, you know, this is just really small potatoes. So we've, we've had a lot to learn from each other, I think. And um, Johnny brings some great, you know, industry expertise. I love that he has so many tools to be able to adapt our wines and make something beautiful and delicious. Uh, but it really was the pandemic, I think, when we started to reevaluate how we're spending our time and how we're investing in our future. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when we started the paperwork to get everything rolling. So that time, uh, obviously, that was a time of transition for a lot of people and obviously a lot of things up in the air. So uh, was there uh, was there sort of a moment when you realized, like, this is something we need to do? And, 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 and what were the steps at that point once you decided you had you were in? That's a great question. Um, I think it's something that I always had envisioned us doing also. I think the pandemic kind of helped push us along that. We both were stable in our jobs and we had a little extra income that we could funnel into this project. And I know that a lot of winemakers probably suffer from this and that's that when you're making wine for somebody else or in my position you're teaching wine, like you still have that creative spark to where you wanna do your thing as well. And so this is an outlet for, for just us being able to do our own thing. So first steps then, you have to, you have to name the brand. You have yes. to figure out what you're gonna do with it. Oh wow. So tell, so tell us about That's, the kind of initial steps. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, naming, naming the brand was, um, that was a fun one. Um, we started off uh, by just structuring a business actually. We didn't even think about the winery first. We wanted to get our groundwork as far as the initial business and then square away our banking account and getting QuickBooks and all these other things that I never thought of when it came to starting. But we learned really quick, it's like, well, this is actually what you have to do if you are going to start a business, because that's what a winery is. And so um, I know that we struggled for a long time with the name, and we actually were going to call it something else. Uh, we were going to call it Brosy. And we went through our design phase with our designer. Uh, we, he came up with these beautiful concepts. We found one that we loved. and. Um, it was everything packaged, ready to go. Uh, before we went to print, I did a double check uh, just with the trademark registry to make sure that we weren't doing anything that we were going to get in trouble for. And it turns out that somebody actually has a trademark on Brosy um, on a wine label. And yeah, we was like, well, great. Now we have to rename it. Um, and that was, yeah, somebody trademarked it during the, the brose craze, which was like, oh, this is our last name, but we can't use it, so, okay. But uh, luckily we had named the business, because uh, also when you pick an LLC, you have to name it. Uh, and we're like, well, we'll name it after Courtney's grandma. And then uh, the name Flora Jane, it's a very pretty name, and uh, our actual design was based off of my grandpa's business card uh, that he had designed in the 60s for his business, which was a wholesale floral business. And I was like, okay, we can go with this. Flora, flowers, business card, we, grandparents, like, okay, this, this works. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's kind of how it got its name. What, as, you were, as you were designing it, you mentioned kind of designing it as a business and, and then a, and then a, a wine business. Uh, tell me about sort of the roles you've, you felt like you would be playing and how, how it would fit into the rest of your lives. Oh, goodness. Uh, well, I knew Johnny. Well, we joke that I'm the CEO and winemaker uh, with no technical background. I'm the assistant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, we knew Johnny was going to be kind of in that creative role and managing the, the back end of all of our lab results, all of our chemistry, all of our, you know, all of the analytics were really going to be 
for, for him. Um, <clears throat> he also helps out with, you know, finding our fruit contracts and maintaining a lot of those relationships in the industry. Um, my role became kind of everything else, uh, figuring out, you know, registering with the state, what do we need for compliance, uh, what do we need for the website, um, figuring out bookkeeping and uh, making appointments with the tax, you know, <laughs> with the tax guy to figure out kind of how we were going to, um, you know, keep our ducks in a row. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that um, balances really well with Johnny and I, where I sort of tend to lean more into that organizational pattern uh, and he gets to so have some good. Of the, it's, it's so good to have that like, <laughs> the creative outlet and that like that free thought and the bigger picture strategy on kind of where we're going and and I sort of help to fill in those kind of important gaps along the way um, and that's I think been true there's been some storming on kind of who does what and it it all feels overwhelming I think for both of us as individuals as at times uh, but in the end, you know, we got to share our wines back in April with a, a small group of family and friends, and it was so cool. It was just so much fun to finally share this thing that we'd been working on for, you know, a year and a half, two years, these wines that we'd babied, and uh, people were loving it. So that was, that was very rewarding. We did our first local event as well, uh, first Friday, and um, getting positive feedback from people that we'd never met before was also really, really rewarding. It's like, okay, <laughs> this, uh, this, this works. Well, I'm gonna come back to that in a second because I'm curious, I'm always curious about like re reception of wine, but Courtney, I'm curious for your perspective, um, was there anything surprising or unique or unexpected about starting wine or getting into the winery work? Hmm. I mean, I think it was all sort of unexpected because I just didn't know what I didn't know. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think one piece that's really encouraging is that this is a tight-knit community. You know, I had, uh, we're called members at a couple of places. You know, I, I went to Laura Lang at Hazelfern and I said, Laura, I think I'm going to do this thing. And, um, and she really helped kind of calm some of my anxieties and talk me through, you know, what some of those options were going to be, some of the um, referrals that she gave me for basic things like, who, who in this, you know, in the insurance world kind of knows what, what wineries do and how they operate and what you're going to need to be insured for. I mean, really basic stuff, but um, I guess I'm always surprised and really pleased to know that there are people in the industry that are so willing to share what they've learned and, and pass it forward. So Johnny, you mentioned that, uh, like with many winemakers, the kind, of, the kind of creative itch, the artistic itch that's there that when you're working for somebody else, you don't necessarily get to scratch. So Tell me what it was you wanted to create with this and, and, and the two of you, what, what, what you wanted to present to the world. I think just having something with just our name on it was really important because I think when you, when you come up working through a bunch of different wineries, like, yes, you help create the product and it does take a village, but it's never truly yours. Um, with this, where it's just Courtney and I, like, it, it really is ours and we've done it from ground zero to where it is right now. So I think that it's, it's fulfilling and then, um, both of our families have entrepreneurship in them, so being able to carry on that too is really important for us. Yeah, I would just add that, you know, we really wanted to bring forward a three pack of beautiful wines that were also not too hard on the pocketbooks. Um, so budget friendly was something that we had talked about from a very early stage in our project planning where we didn't want to overshoot on our pricing and we had to get really creative with kind of how we were making the wines and what we were signing ourselves up for. Um, and I, that's something I really appreciate, appreciate about what Johnny got to learn, especially at Fortuity, was 
pricing out all of the materials and the packaging costs um, in advance so that we could come to market with something that you know felt really approachable and inviting and delicious. As for the wines themselves, um, was there something unique about them? Yeah, so um, I think one of the unique things is we, we, do, we are doing some Washington fruit. Um, I will forever love the Yakima Valley. Um, and I don't care where we are, like as long as we have a wine label, I'd always love to uh, be getting fruit from there. So um, one of my friends is the vineyard manager at Elephant Mountain, and um, he was able to uh, get us some really nice Syrah. Uh, and I, I love Syrah. That's what I got to make in Australia for a few vintages. Um, so we're doing Syrah. And the Pinot for us was, let's try to find something. and. Uh, Rob Clark, who used to manage the school's vineyard and also has terrapin cellars, uh, has been so great for us. Uh, he was like, oh, yeah, I've got some Yole Amity Hills Pinot Noir. Um, it's yours if you want it. And so uh, we were like, yeah, absolutely, let's do that. And then um, I think maybe this is more of the King Estate side things, but I really do think Pinot Gris is one of the hidden gems in Oregon wine. Um, so that was something that you can do uh, more affordably and keep it affordable as well and produce killer wine. So with, the, with those first wines you mentioned, kind of being able to present, present them to family and friends first and then have your first event. So tell me what it's like then having, a, having that bottle with your name on it and, having, uh, and knowing what's in it and then being able to present it to people. It's exciting, right? Like, what do you think? I, I mean, yeah, it was, uh, it has felt like such a wild ride and it was, you know, like when you're finally coasting a little bit and you, you can finally breathe. I just, uh, yeah, I think we were nervous to see, you know, what other people thought. I mean, we love them, but it, it's always rewarding and I think um, helpful to have feedback from close friends and family first. Um, but it's felt I think just like a joy, it really has. And every time we, we sh you know, cause we ship wines as well. Uh, every time we get an email, we're like, we got an order. Yeah, <laughs> I remember the first person was like, do you know this person? No, I don't know this person. So getting that first random person or the first person that we'd never met before, like that was really exciting. It's like, okay, this is actually growing somewhat organically to where it is spreading word of mouth um, because this is the marketing team right here uh, and neither of us are marketers. We do have a sandwich board though now, which we're really excited that's, about. That's yeah. <laughs> Very official. <laughs> well, on that note, I'm curious about selling wine. Obviously, uh, you have some experience, both of you, in, in working with wine and wine sales. Uh, what's different about selling your own wine and, and what are kind of you looking, as you look ahead, what are some of the strategies you're looking ahead to? Well, I think uh, we knew in initially that we were going to keep this really small, so we needed a way to get it out to family and friends, but also out of the state. And so we chose to go with a third party who offered some of those permitting options that we didn't have to take on individually. Um, and that's been a huge success. Um, it helps with customer management. Um, it helps with, you know, getting folks... Um, you know, we've gone to Washington, Texas, uh, Hawaii, California, Idaho, Minnesota. I mean, yeah. it's been really <laughs> exciting to see sort of where our reach has been able to be captured. Um, so that was one way that we started selling. And, you know, I think every small business uh, needs social media to kind of run that aspect of things. So uh, I have, again, learning curve on kind of the basics of just how to, how to manage that. Um, and I still have a lot to learn, but... Uh, Johnny probably would speak to sort of where we're headed with some of that. 
Yeah, so I know there aren't any plans for a tasting room. Um, and hopefully maybe that's something we can delete 10 years down the road. <laughs> but we're, we really do rely on um, community events um, or even partnering with other wineries. I would love to do a small collaboration with other uh, small producers to where we could go in on a space together for a day or, or just something like that, have a small winery festival. And there seems to be interest in that. But I think for us, we also weren't going to do a club. Um, we wanted to take the 100 Sons approach and doing a release. Um, but after our event and just the questions of where's the club, it's like, okay, it looks like we have to do a club. So uh, we started that, and I think it's a little easier than what we thought it would be as far as managing goes. And again, that's that, that third-party um, vino shipper. They've, they've been really key in that, and I think that's a part of the, the early success. So you mentioned you're kind of coming out of the box with a, with a three-pack, three, three different kinds of wine. Uh, as you look ahead, are there other things you want to try and, and add? What's, what's next? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, we're excited to do a lot of different things. We, we feel like we need to keep the Syrah on for at least another vintage. We'll see kind of how that plays out. But people have really loved the Pinot. Uh, we're excited to potentially do some Chardonnay, maybe some Rosé, and kind of see where we take things from there. Yeah. And, and I mean, if I had it my way, too, we'd probably get another big red from Washington. So maybe there'll be cab in our future. But that's... And, and again, small lots, too. Nothing... We're not going to make 300 cases of Washington Cab and try to sell it here in the Willamette Valley. I don't think that works. But I do think that one ton every other year is something that you can offer as something special. Um, this is Pinot country, and it forever will be. And I'm really excited about that because I love making Pinot. Uh, I do think it's important to just have another option if you can. So as you look ahead, then also uh, you mentioned small. Uh, do you have a size in mind, or do you have uh, do you have something in mind as an end goal? Well, we've been doing some projections, and we're really looking at you know in our first three years of selling wine, kind of staying at that 200 cases, kind of right under there. We may see things change, but it's kind of that interesting point of the business where you just aren't quite sure how quick it's going to grow, and how much we want to take on. Uh, you know, this is still a, a side gig for us. It's something that we love to do, uh, but we do have other commitments. So for me, it's keep it small for a while and see how things go. And if we create, you know, more demand and we have some of that club membership solidified, then I think that would give us more confidence in taking on additional fruit contracts in the future. Yeah. And I, I've seen wineries in the past where they, they had more disposable income and they, they made something really big up front. And I don't see the benefit of that. I think that that's harder work because you're not growing something slowly. And I'm all about the grow it slow and then kind of manage it. And then when it becomes to a point where you can't manage it, it's like, well, that's where we're going to cap it. So, John, I want to talk about your Jamaica work for a second because you, you mentioned obviously you were here in 2020. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, your experience in 2020 at Chemeketa, what, what were you able to take away from there, but also what were you able to kind of impart on people as you're working? Yeah, so I started in, 2019 was my first year there, so I'd, I'd had one year under my belt, but um, it was a very interesting year because it wasn't just with 2020 with smoke, but we also had COVID. And since Chemeketa is a state institution, there's, there was a, I have a few different bosses, uh, and they, they, there's rules that that if that's the rule, that's the rule. So it was very difficult um, 
I know it was for all the winemakers, but as a teacher as well, uh, because we had to adhere to certain policies, which I fully supported. Uh, just it made things just a little bit more difficult. And so uh, our program did, we didn't fight, but we made a strong case for ourselves that a program like ours has to be done in person. You can't make wine online. Uh, you can't teach wine online like that. You have to have that hands-on. And <clears throat> my approach with the students was, well, this smoke is a factor that we have zero control over, so let's do the best we can. And I taught the class how I do every other year as far as when you have this problem, this is how you can still teach botrytis uh, even if there's smoke, right? It, the smoke's, at this, it's an afterthought. It's something that, yes, it's going to impact the wines. And luckily for the students that year, they got to go through reverse osmosis. So now they know that one of the remediating things that you can do to a smoke-tainted wine. I think too, Johnny, you, um, one of the, I think the positives that came out of that was that he ended up starting to record the lab sessions that he was teaching. So folks, I think, did appreciate being able to go back and see the steps of the procedures that you were teaching. And that was something that you continued on with as well. Yeah. So I guess I did change a few things as far as how some of the classes were taught. Um, but this is, again, more, that's COVID-based, not wildfire-based, but yeah. Both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. We got the double whammy. So you had come, obviously, you had been in California, you had also been in Australia, so uh, did you have smoke experience? You know, what's interesting is, no. Um, where we were in, at Derenberg in South Australia, um, it never burned anywhere near where we were. Um, and then where I was in, in Livingston, um, that, that's just, there's so many spans of grapes, and so it, it, never, it never was an issue. Um, I really didn't know much about smoke taint and wines until um, making wine in Washington, in the Yakima Valley, uh, because that's something that WSU has been doing pretty extensive research on for uh, probably the last decade, if not longer. And I remember sitting in on a panel and being like, oh, this is really interesting. This is something that I've never, I've never had to come across in my winemaking travels. So 2020, I think, was a big wake up for everyone as far as um, we need a game plan as a just-in-case, because I'd be surprised if it didn't happen again. Hey, yeah, I'm curious about that. Where did, where, where did you think the Lyman Valley was when, it, when the smoke came? How, how, did, how prepared were people? Not. <laughs> it's one of the, it's, it's something, I, I can't remember when the last smoke event in the Lyman Valley was, but it certainly hasn't been while well, I've been making wine. So, uh, and again, I think that so many people just didn't have the experience with it. Um, I feel like the next time it happens, everyone is going to be much better prepared. Um, we'll know days out, it's like, okay, are we going to pick? Uh, is there a new technology? Is there a new finding agent? Is there something else that we can do that's going to actually remove the smoke? Or are we going to just, we're going to just deal with it and um, got to get the consumers on board. Like, well, this is this vintage. This is a reflection of the weather. This is what happened. Yeah, and for our personal project, we, we took on the grapes and we made wine with it. And that's because, one, we were new and we had signed our name to a contract and we wanted to support the vineyard and also just were true to our word. So we did that. It's a tough, tough first vintage. It was. It was a tough first vintage. <laughs> How about the second vintage? How did the second vintage go? Better. <laughs> 2021 was good. And I, when we first started to, our plan was we're going to keep this, we're going to give ourselves more time to sell through our inventory instead of stockpiling. Um, and so our initial was 
reds one year, whites next year, bottle every every year that you're doing white wine, um, which I think showing how much or seeing how much we have sold this far, we're probably gonna have to change that to where we will start doing the more traditional reds every year. Um, but um, yeah, that was our game plan. So last year in 2021, we actually, yeah, we didn't make as much red as uh, we thought we were going to. So but that's the beauty of this is we're learning every year. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, yeah. Too many people watch your wine. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> or we have very supportive family members. <laughs> so we talked earlier about kind of your initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry. Uh, I'm curious, uh, coming from your from those initial impressions, what are the biggest changes you both have seen in the industry, and what does it look like to you now uh, in 2022? Um, so I remember in school. Um, I don't think it's because of how we were talking. I just remember, like, I had a worry of, like, oh, color and pinot. Like, this is really important. Uh, we don't want these lighter pinots. They're going to be assessed as poor value because they don't have these, the colors that they have in Sonoma or even parts of Burgundy. And I remember being, color was a big thing. And then I remember thinking, like, okay, ripeness is a big thing. Um, we're going to have to add sugar to wine. Being able to do that to where you're not over-sugaring and getting too much alcohol out of the fermentation. Um, I, I remember like being worried about that when I was in school. And um, I don't think that's a thing anymore that most people worry about. So um, as far as capitalization goes, uh, but I think this vintage is gonna be different. We're gonna have to pull out some of those older techniques as far as dealing with fruit that's later ripening. And I'm excited to see how that goes. But also the, the pushes for not Pinot and not Chardonnay, even though those are what makes the Willamette Valley the Willamette Valley, in my opinion, um, and Pinot Gris, but seeing other varietals out there, I, I, think, it's, um, I think it's exciting, but I, I still hope that we all kind of hold on to the, the Pinot and Chardonnay, because it is what makes it special here. What about you, Courtney? You know, I think, I think a lot of it is similar. I mean, it's still that really tight knit that I remember from 15 years ago. Um, you know, having that community support is really important and we've gotten to know new people in the community, but um, still a lot to learn. I feel a little like Johnny is more our connection to that uh, through his work with Oregon Wine Symposium, with Aivoy. I've had an opportunity to teach that group as well. Uh, so f for me, I think, you know, there's just more ownership in it now, now that we're a piece of it and have our own project. Uh, I just want to be able to kind of pay it forward to others. And um, one of the ways that I've been able to do that so far is just to, you know, I was invited to teach with Ayuboy and get to speak with them in their preferred language and talk about some of the safety concerns in the vineyard and how to help folks grow in their own careers. So that that's sort of, I guess, the way maybe my mindset has shifted a little away from just it's so pretty and delicious to uh, <laughs> having more of a hand in helping the next the next person along. How does it how does it actually get made? Yeah. <laughs> what, what can I do to make it better? Yeah, absolutely. So Johnny, so both of you, you mentioned kind of uh, organizations worked with so I, I avoid and, and symposium. Uh, what what role do you feel those kinds of things are playing in the industry right now? And do you, what do you see for the future of kind of those type of industry organizations? Oh gosh, I think it's so important to have it. I, I don't know of any other organization that's like Ahivoy that's out there and available. And I think it's something, I, I know that it's started here in the wine industry, but I really hope that it spreads to other industries uh, because it is so important as far as we all float on the same boat. And so, you know, rising tides and however that saying goes, but 
it's very rewarding um, to see not just the students, but also their employer's support for it. It just shows that everybody is buying into this. So then as you look ahead for Oregon Wine, uh, what comes next for the industry? Uh, obviously coming off of a couple of interesting years and, and obviously in, in the middle of another one right now. Uh, so what does the industry look like in the future? I hope Shannon Blanc. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, um, I think that sparkling wine here in the Willamette Valley has a, should have a big piece of the pie, and I would hope to see more of that. Um, and, hmm, can't think of any other, I, I don't know, I guess. Like, it'll be interesting to see what is planted in the next 10 years, um, or to see what, maybe, what we've gone away from, or what techniques are new, and, um, what the winery count's going to be. Uh, it's a continuing growing market as far as new, like there's new wineries every year. Um, and just seeing that number skyrocket means that there's a demand uh, and that people are more interested in it. So I, I hope to see that continuing trend as far as going up. Yeah, I guess I'm curious to see what will what will happen with small producers like us. I mean, we are like micro small and, um, you know, that's not always achievable uh, if you have a, a rough harvest or you're only able to purchase in minimum quantities. So we've been really lucky to know the people that we do who've been able to kind of help us with these smaller lots. And I think in the future, it, it'll be interesting to see if that continues to be a really widely spread option. Um, I hope so. I hope that that continues because I think we get to bring something really special to market that is unique and um, specific to how we approach wine, but um, I'll be curious. And uh, I think from a, from a vineyard practices perspective, I'm, I'm curious to see if there will be some automation out there because of the labor issues that we've had. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll find some ways to integrate that while still providing jobs for folks out there. Um, but being able to know you can pick uh, when you want to pick is really important, and um, that becomes a challenge when the labor is spread so thin around harvest time. You both kind of spoke to a point about sort of, uh, obviously, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, that's what the Valley has been known for for a long time, but obviously a lot of interest in new things, and obviously you have interest in things outside of that as well. Uh, and from a market perspective, what are you seeing right now in terms of what are what are customers asking for and, and what are you kind of, do you see that continuing to change or do you see something different in the future? I think that there's a big split in customer base actually. Like I do see um, younger people that are buying wine, they are holding, they're still buying Pinot. Uh, they're still buying Chardonnay, maybe not as much. Uh, they're still buying Pinot Gris. Um, I think that with other varietals, like that's what younger people are buying. Uh, just something that's different because their entire lives it's been Pinot, 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 and I get that. The older buyers, uh, I just see a lot of like, what Pinots do you have? Um, and so that, that's, that's my perspective on it is what Pinots do you have with the older ones, the younger buyers? Um, and this is all generalizing. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, this is just from my own personal experience what I've seen. I, I don't have the numbers with me right now to, to back <laughs> that up, but, um, yeah. yeah. I would say, you know, we were, we love Syrah. It's lesser known here, so I think it's been a bit of a different sell for folks. And people either love it 
or they love the Pinot. And so it's kind of fun to see which, you know, how people are split in that way. But I think the most surprising piece of our project was, you know, we made Pinot Gris and I typically don't love it. It's usually a little too sweet for me. I prefer a Chardonnay or something more crisp. And so we went into this release thinking, you know, ours is really good. Uh, it's better than I anticipated and we're really excited about it. And I've, we've had so many folks um, just really enjoy it and, and tell us that they're not traditionally Pinot Gris drinkers. So it's kind of fun to convert those folks uh, based on the wine that we're providing them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say exactly. I think you just have to have a little bit of everything for those folks. So what, would, what advice or words of wisdom would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry? Um, well, if they're not from Oregon, uh, come and live in Oregon for a while, uh, because I think that that's, I've heard this from so many people, um, they were here visiting in the summer and they saw one of those Oregon summers that it's just beautiful weather and everyone's nice and it's friendly and there is traffic, yeah, but not as bad as wherever they're coming from and all these good things and, and then fall comes and it's like, oh, now it's the rain. And for those people that did this maybe last year or two years ago, uh, all of the rain that we've had this year, like that's kind of what it used to be like. So I think that that's been, I mean, for me, it's been a reawakening of like, oh, wow, I haven't seen this since college. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's what it used to be. So I think uh, know the weather. <laughs> um, and I think that trained winemakers um, is a good thing for the industry. So putting more quality products out there, again, we all rise uh, together in the same boat. So um, if you are coming to start a winery, learn how to make wine. At least go and work somewhere. Um, don't just come and do it, I guess would be my, uh, <laughs> my advice. Anything to add to that? Just be good to each other, you know, it just, just be good. I mean, so many people have helped us along the way and uh, I see some other small wineries coming up right now that I'm following their projects and really excited for. I think uh, being good people and doing good marketing, putting a quality product forward, it's a lot, but it can be done. And um, gosh, you know, if you don't have to reinvent the wheel, like why not lean on the folks that have been through it and, and can share a little bit of that knowledge and expertise of their their experience and, and yeah. go from there. And I guess one more thing is is you can start a winery without a tasting room or owning a vineyard or any of that. Like there are options available to do it. So I think that that's something that's important to know too. It's yeah, there are options. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. I don't think everybody, everybody understands that. So yeah, if you're not going to start a tasting room though, don't don't make 1,200 cases and expect to just sell it. Uh, it is work selling it, um, but you can manage without a tasting room. Um, but I think with that, like you do have to lower your price. You do have to uh, beat the pavement. You do have to go to a community events. Uh, you do have to find interesting ways or different ways of selling your product and marketing yourself. All right, so the questions that I have for the two of you, is there anything I didn't ask? I should have anything we didn't cover that we should have covered. Not that I can think of. No. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for your time, for your hospitality here, answering all of our questions. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.